0: You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.fin. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Gosh, you're a noisy bunch this morning. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We are delighted to see you guys too. Nice to see you, everyone. Okay, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Tori. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. And I am delighted to be here to talk to you this morning uh, to continue our series on authentic faith. Um, we're working our way through the book of James in the New Testament. And um, James is called James the Just in some church traditions. He was the brother or stepbrother of Jesus. And so is sometimes referred to as, now let me pronounce this correctly, James Adelphotheos, which in the Greek means brother of God. Imagine that being your name, brother of God. Now I've got two brothers and one sister. And we grew up in the same house, eating the same food and wearing the same hand-me-down clothes. And I'm blessed enough to be able to say that as siblings, we really love each other even now as adults and I thank God for them regularly but I know stuff about my brothers and about my sister and they know stuff about me they know all the stories um, all the all the time the funny things and the yeah dodgy stories from way back in the day now Jesus grew up in a home with his earthly parents, Joseph, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, with Joseph and Mary. And apparently six siblings, four brothers and two sisters, it's, it's thought. Um, and they grew up in the same house, eating the same food, and probably wearing the same hand-me-down clothes. The eldest of Jesus' younger siblings was James, brother of God the one that we believe wrote this letter. I've heard my brother's best man speeches and how they commended each other to their future wives. And they were funny and they were really loving, but they absolutely roasted one another because that's what sibling relationships are like, right? Hands up, who's got siblings? Look at you, you are blessed. Um, Blessed with truth. (laughs) People that speak truth into your life. Yeah, my brothers roasted each other. And my point is that James, who is the writer of this letter, he knew Jesus, like he really knew Jesus. How fun would it be to have a cup of tea and a biscuit with James? What questions would you like to ask the brother of Jesus, the person that grew up in the same house as Jesus? I've got hundreds of questions, so I'm hoping that maybe in heaven I'll be allowed to do that. But I think that James would have some great stories to tell. So it transpires that James and the other brothers of Jesus, apparently they didn't actually follow Jesus' teachings or live lives as Jesus' followers or believers until after the resurrection when Jesus appeared to them. And we know that James and his siblings were in the upper room at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended on the room and filled the believers, as it's recorded in the book of Acts. After this, James and the Apostle Peter go on to be the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. And so James the Just, as he's called, went on to live and teach about Jesus until he was eventually martyred. It seems like James's Jewish education and his faith in God, followed by salvation through the death and resurrection of his own brother, have helped to cultivate a particular um, accent or a particular passion for both mental assent, like believing, and then living out authentic faith, what we're talking about today. His expression and his passion, it holds absolutely no restraint. As we heard with Libby talking last week, um, when it comes to advising the early Jewish Christians who were going to be the initial readers of this letter, he did not hold back. The way that he writes is oriented towards teaching that belief must be backed up by a lived expression. That faith without action is not the full authentic faith. So in this letter where he dishes up guidance on how to live a life that embodies faith in Jesus Christ, James is absolutely savage. He uses really, really strong language to describe the world and its value systems. He uses phrases like moral filth. If you say that in a a Scottish accent, that really works, doesn't it? It sounds so judgy. Moral filth, adulterous people, bitter envy, selfish ambition, earthliness, unspiritual, disorder and every evil practice. You know, that's, that's not like painting it rosy, is it? That's like straight down the line. There's a vehement passion in his word choice that sets the tone of his letter that just won't tolerate a half-hearted application of belief in Christ and his teachings. So in this wee chunk of the letter that we're gonna be looking at today, James doesn't hold back He calls it how he sees it and it's titled boasting about tomorrow is evil. There you go. It's good, huh? So let's read it together. So we're turning to, if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to James chapter four and we are starting in verses 13 to 16. It's just a wee chunk, but it packs a punch. Boasting about tomorrow is evil. Now Jesus, no, sorry, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, we will spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that disappears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who, knew, who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Pretty savage, isn't it? Wow. So at first glance, when we read the statement that James quotes in verse 13, we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there and carry on business and make money to our ears, and in the context of global capitalist culture, that doesn't actually seem that offensive, does it? In fact, some of us might even suggest that it's good stewardship of a person's time, gifting and effort to make a plan and, you know, work at it. Yes, I'm going to do a gap year. I'm going to go to South America and start a surf school on the beach. It'll be great. You know, there's nothing doesn't sound inherently wrong. But James says it's evil. So what's the big deal? What's the offense that James is leveling at the readers? In verse 14, why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Thanks for that, James. He's saying that making such confident statements is arrogant given the brevity and the uncertainty in our lives. Now he was most likely expressing this to a specific group of people among the Christian Jews who were making confident boasts about their plans despite the oppression of the political and philosophical climate that they lived in. The whole region suffered under turmoil and uncertainty and sadly continues to do so even today. Nevertheless, I think that James's point has merit for us today as Christians. Life is short and unexpected things happen that often derail our plans, our hopes and our dreams. And what James is getting at is that if God's will is central in our lives, then falling into sin through ungodly attitudes and behaviour can be avoided. So there seem to be three parts of this statement that each reveal a heart condition or an attitude that James is suggesting is ungodly. So the first part of the boasting, we will statement is the plan. We will go there. And the attitude that James is highlighting here is control. So today, We're under the illusion that we're in control of where we go because we are free to choose. We've got free free will. Isn't it great to be able to move freely around the planet these days? We can get on a plane and jet off to wherever we want. We're allowed to. Remember a time not so long ago when we weren't allowed to? It was very unpleasant. We've got the freedom to choose our life's destinations and our life's directions our free will that we have is actually a gift from God. And we offer our plans back to God in submission to his good and perfect will, it always results in blessing. In Jeremiah 29 verse 11, scripture says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. When we surrender control to God, his heart and mind are opened towards us without the obstacle of our ego. If we belong to God, then that which is good and perfect should be our preferred direction. But how do we know what that is? How do we discern, how do we work out what God's good and perfect will is? Well, we certainly won't know what it is if we base our plans and direction on the value systems of the world, and we we won't know what God's will is in any situation if we don't take the time to ask Him. Listen to this verse in Romans 12. We're going to do a wee bit of a gallop through the Bible today, so you know, you can check on your phones if you want, um, or follow in your your book Bible if you carry one. Romans 12:2. do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. So how does God make His will clear to us in life's direction? Let's look at some examples of God's clear direction in Scripture. Do you remember the story of Jonah? James does. One day, the Lord spoke to Jonah, son of Amittai, I think. He said, go to Nineveh, that great city and speak out against it. I am aware how wicked its people are. And Jonah sets out in the opposite direction to avoid God. He runs away. I don't know if you remember the rest of the story eventually he does go back but he gets eaten by a whale first it doesn't you know it's it's a painful story for Jonah but God was really clear go there very direct what about Mary and Joseph they had angelic visitations and dreams they had a dream. Joseph has a dream saying uh, where God says to him leave Bethlehem and go to Egypt why because Herod was going to kill all the baby boys. We're going to kill, try and kill Jesus. So angels, dreams, direct word, go there. The put about the Magi. I love the Magi. I think they're just awesome. They follow a star in the sky. That's how they follow their direction that God put there. God put the star in the sky. And then they were warned in a dream. Um, to return to their homeland via a different route. Why? Again, to avoid Herod. So God's direction was clear in order to give them protection, to keep them safe and alive. Philip. Do you remember Philip? Lola remembers Philip. He gets an angelic visitation as well. I would love an angelic visitation. How, How amazing would that be? I mean i might be speechless for weeks afterwards but it would be really cool right so this angel appears to philip and says go south on the desert road from jerusalem to gaza really clear that's like saying tori get up drive south on the a92 to stonehaven right good okay i will do that that's very clear direction and then the holy spirit gives him clear instructions Um, to ride, to to run alongside a specific um, carriage, chariot, chariot, be a fast runner, must have been fast. And the result is that he shares the gospel uh, with the man that's reading scripture and doesn't understand it in this chariot. And he gets baptized at the side of the road and then ends up taking the gospel of Jesus to Ethiopia. Now, what if Philip had said, actually, Lord, the wife's just put fresh bread in there she's just taking a fresh loaf of bread out of the oven we're going to sit and enjoy it the kids are about to come home from school can i go later he'd have missed that god was so clear or the angel was very clear go south very specific instructions god is interested in the geography of his people he really is my daughters um, asked me to get this app called Life 360. Does anybody know who that is? What that is? Give us a wave if you know what that is. It's basically like a tracking app so that, they said, it's so that you can know where we are, mom. And I was like, G- girls, I know where you are. You tell me where you are. I don't need an app to tell me that. I can speak to you or you can tell me where you're going to be. But they were like, no, we want you to have this app. Actually, I think it was so that they could see where I was. I think they want to track me. <laughs> Mom's gone dark. Where is she? So. Like God, I am interested in the whereabouts and in the geography of my people. My family are on, all on this little app and you know, it shows on the map where we all are. I'm interested in the geography of my children, where they are and my husband also, and they are interested in mine also, but this comes from God. God is interested in where we go. He's into the detail. What about the Israelites? They are in the desert for 40 years. In Exodus 13, God led them the long way round, with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of flame by night. Just follow this fire tornado and you'll be good. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's madness. What a terrifying and glorious sight that must have been. A, a pillar of fire. Beggar's belief, really. Did anybody see... I I saw a YouTube clip recently of um, these storm chasers in America. Did anybody see it? Yeah, a few people. A few people are nodding. Um, So there's these three guys, and they're in their car, and they've got all this kind of, I don't know, storm tracking technology in their car. And uh, they're driving, and you can see the side of this tornado, and they're driving towards it. And um, I mean, it's crazy. They're getting quite close. And then eventually what happens and they're filming inside the car so the the whole clip is real and filmed from within the car and it's insane basically the car gets sucked up in this tornado and they get thrown around and inside the car all you can you can't really see much in the video because it's all just blurry but all you can hear is them screaming help me Jesus save me Jesus now I don't know if they knew Jesus before but they did afterwards because at the end of the video, the, you know, it stops and the three of them get out the car unscathed. Their car is totaled, absolutely wrecked. <laughs> but in their moment of utter crisis, near a tornado or in a tornado, in a car, in a tornado, they were scr- screaming, not just like, help me, Lord. They were really screaming for Jesus' help. And God delivered them. So I wonder what they'll do with their lives. I wonder if it's changed their perspective. Maybe, who knows. But just in case you're under the impression that God doesn't give clear direction today, I've got a great story for you. So James and I, when we were only married a couple of years, we had this brilliant little car. It was a Fiesta XR2 and we loved it. And we, James loved it. It went, it went like a go-kart. It was great. And we came down to get in the car to go to work one morning, and the car was gone. It had been nicked, and we were gutted. James was really upset. And so we we got on with our day, and at some point, James was on the phone to my brother, brothers, um, who lived in Aberdeen and worked as a mechanic at Halfords at Kitty Brewster. Kitty Brewster? Yes. Um, and uh, he was like, my brother was outraged because he loves cars and he loved our car as well. And he looked after it for us and helped us with it. And so he, he tells the story much better than me, but basically at, in his lunch hour, he was like, God, this is not fair. They can't afford a new car. They're trying to live for you. You need to help them find their car. Help me find their car, Jesus, help me find their car. So he gets in his car and he starts driving. And the Holy Spirit gives him guidance says as he's driving he doesn't know where he's going but he's just like i'm just gonna go and he starts driving and he feels senses the lord say to him straight on left right straight on and basically he kind of listens to this little voice inside quiet voice giving him very specific directions and he finds the car he finds our car So he phones James and um, he's like, dude, I found your car. And so, so James, so him and James, uh, they go to the police station nearby and they're like, so we had our car stolen, but we just found it. Can you come with us to go and get it? And the police officers were extremely helpful um, and said, actually, we're on our lunchtime. Um, You'll have to wait half an hour. And so they were like, but the car could be gone in half an hour. We need we need it back. And they were like, Well, we can't be responsible if you go and take it back. We cannot be responsible if something goes wrong. And they were like, fine. So basically, long story short, James and my brother nick the car back. <laughs> Brilliant. God gives clear directions. My brother was, you know, he, he's he's just an ordinary guy who said an ordinary prayer, God help me find this car. And God helped him find the car I gave him really specific and clear directions about which way to move it was amazing Proverbs 3 verse 6 in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths so you guys know that I'm a spiritual director it's one of the things I do and I love a good question so I thought I'd give you some questions to ponder this week so if you want to take a little Photograph of this or write it down, then go ahead. You don't have to, no pressure. But two questions that I think would be fun for you to chew on this week. When it comes to making decisions around your life's direction and geography, what are your main drivers? How have you previously decided where you will go? That's question one. Question two. When in your life I should say your, sorry it says our when in your life has God rerouted you or given you specific directions? I would love to hear the answers to these stories, if, these questions, if you ever feel that you want to share them with me. I love chatting on this stuff. Okay. So the second part of the boasting, we will statement is we will do business, brackets, and it will be successful. The attitude that James is highlighting here is one of pride and arrogance. The hubris of mankind assumes entitlement and success. We feel like we should be successful. Why why shouldn't we? It's the whole entitlement thing that's just part of human nature. It's very unattractive, but it's true. But there are several problems with this worldview. Have you heard the phrase, he's a self-made man? It speaks of success in the world's view. Self-definition is, in fact, one of the main idols of our current age. Self-made and self-defined don't leave much space for the handiwork of our loving God. In Ephesians 2 verse 10, scripture says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Long ago, God had plans all laid out for you long ago before you were even born. And when we take things into our own hands or do things out of our own sense of autonomy and entitlement, we negate the planning that went into our creation. We're not in control of all the variables which affect the outcomes of future events. There's no definitive way of saying that anything that we hope to do will happen or be in any measurable way successful. In James chapter 4 verse 6, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If our metrics for measuring success are the same as worldly measures, then we run the risk of being at odds with God's kingdom values. There's a a priest and um, theologian, a guy called Henry Nguyen. And uh, he wrote this paper about there being three lies that the the enemy of our souls kind of throws at us in hopes that we'll grab hold of them and they'll they'll stick. And the the three lies are, it's to do with self-identity. Three lies that he says they are, you are what you have. You are what you do. You are who other people say you are. And these are the three lies that, that we all fall prone to at some point. It's a really interesting uh, paper if you ever get the chance to read it. But the second of those lies, we are what we do. That's where pride comes in. Self definition is one of the world's mantras, but it leads to a distorted self image. We are, each of us, much, much more than the accumulated sum of our accomplishments. God shapes and molds us through the things that we do, but there's much more to us than that. It's not definitive, the things that we get up to, our business. Some of our most beneficial life lessons come about through our failures. Sometimes God allows us to fail in our efforts in order to lead us in character transformation towards Christ-likeness. It's hard, but it's true. I failed to get into my first choice of university. It was gutting. I won't, well, my first choice was Glasgow and then Newcastle. <laughs> my second choice then, that's two choices. And I didn't get into either of those, despite having the grades for it. But I was, very, I was proud and I was, my pride was really hurt in that moment how could they reject my my application i have the grades and it was such a dent to my pride but it was one of the best life lessons and in retrospect had i ended up in glasgow i might not have spent 30 years here in aberdeen i might not have married james i might not have had the children that i have who are beautiful and wonderful i might not be here to speak to you lovely people today my life may have been completely and radically different had I had my own way. Sometimes God knows better. When we rely solely on our own abilities and strengths, we restrict the outcomes to the limit of those strengths and abilities, to our own skill. With God's infinite resources of strength and capability, the outcome of any business endeavor could be so much more. God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. With his resources, if our will to do business is submitted to him, then surely it's a much bigger picture. It could be more than we could ask or imagine. God's economy, his ways are not our ways. In Ephesians 3 20 it says now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be the glory in the Old Testament we Bible example in the Old Testament in the book of Judges there's a story about Gideon um, and he's going to go and fight uh the midianites which is an army of people and god says 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 in judges 7 2 the lord said to gideon you have too many men for me to deliver midian into their hands in order that israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her and so gideon reduces well with god's guidance gideon reduces the army size to 300 And victory is theirs, and the Lord delivers victory to them. But so that Israel couldn't boast in her own strength, so that they had to be able to say, God did this for us. So sometimes God removes, uh, God limits us, or failure happens in order for us not to be able to boast that it's our own strength that did it. God has to be the strength and so this whole pride humility thing is a tough one, really tough but my questions on this one are, and these are questions, take a wee uh, photograph if you want to chew on this stuff during the week, when have you experienced more than you had imagined because you were humble enough to ask for God's strength and resource? And the second one, when have your efforts resulted in failure? That has become a blessing retrospectively. And the third part of the boasting, we will statement is we will make money. The attitude that James is highlighting here is love of money and self-sufficiency, which is a form of idolatry, putting all of that before God. Bible says a man cannot serve two masters and all too often the love of money usurps God's place on the throne of our lives in Matthew 6 no one can serve two masters either you'll hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve both God and money Matthew 19 verse 23 then Jesus said to his disciples truly I tell you it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now money itself is not evil. It's inanimate. But the power that we give it can be. The love of money is an appetite that grows as wealth increases. Wealth can become an idol that we spend our lives in pursuit of and worshipping. Timothy in the New Testament, it's got some great instructions for those who are wealthy. In First Timothy, verse six, uh, chapter six—sorry, verses 17 to 18—it says, "Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment." What a lovely blessing! The attitude of self-sufficiency. In the we will make money um statement this attitude creates a barrier for god's all sufficiency god is all sufficient he has everything that he needs he also yep give me a wave girl yeah come on he also has everything that we need el shaddai is one of the hebrew names for god and it means the all-sufficient one God Almighty God lacks for nothing how can we understand our need for God when we've eradicated need from our lives needy has become a bit of a slur in our culture but being in need is part of what it means to be human we need air We need food and water and we need sleep to survive living on earth. And we need Jesus to survive dying on earth. Our need for God is a foundational spiritual principle. If you're uncomfortable with being needy, then you run the risk of not knowing what it's like to experience God's grace. We need Jesus, and we ought not to be ashamed to say it. Because if we deny it, then we deny our humanity. Matthew chapter six verse eight Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. And that's the the, the verses just before the Lord's Prayer. There's a couple of brilliant there's lots of stories about reliance on god in the bible a couple that i'll pull to your attention but i won't, don't really have time to go into them but the story of elijah and the widow at zarapheth it's a beautiful story about need and god's provision and reliance um, if you want to look it up later it's in first kings uh, chapter 17 and it just speaks of god's generosity and his reliability to provide for us Look at um, Jesus' miracles of multiplication. The miraculous catch and the feeding of the 5,000. God can do so much with his all-sufficiency. But if we are self-sufficient, we just get in the way. It's our ego getting in the way. Don't worry, God, I've got this. I'm sorry, do you? Move on over. Let God be God. (laughs) Preach it. A few years back, um, before we had children, I had a great job. Um, I loved it. I was working in the finance sector. And um, I'd had a job since I was 14. I'd grown up in a church household. My dad was a minister. We never had hardly any money. Um, We lived like kings, miraculously, often miraculously. But we didn't actually have very much money. And so when I was old enough to get a job, I was like, that's it. I can do this. And I learned this magic thing, magic spell thing, that if I worked hard, I made money. I was a money-making machine. Brilliant. All I needed was a work ethic and someone that would employ me. So I got a job in a chip shop, which was brilliant fun. And I learned so much about the world, um, as anyone in the service industry will tell you. But um, I had jobs all the way through university and all the way up. And so... I'd carried this kind of self-sufficient, I can do this, I'll, I'll provide for myself. I If I have need, I can provide for it. All I need to do is work a few hours and then they'll pay me money and then I can get what I need. It was really easy. And so I carried that attitude into my adult life. And one time, James, I was working in Edinburgh at the time and James had come down to see me at the weekend. And we'd gone out for dinner in this nice restaurant and... It was all kind of romantic and nice and james leaned in babe i thought he was going to say something really lovely so i was ramping myself up for a nice compliment and he said you know i think at some point in our lives god's going to ask us to live by faith that was not what i wanted to hear my career was just you know and actually my reaction in that moment was crazy i had a panic attack and I hyperventilated to the point where I had to run outside. And I actually, and very embarrassing because I was all nicely dressed and everything, but I actually passed out in a shrubbery. That—that <laughs> That is how panicked I was at the idea of having to rely on God for our finances, for financial security. I was terrified. And the miraculous thing is, and I don't know how or when it happened, but God just over the next few years slowly just changed my mind he just turned my mind around and i don't know how he did it he's amazing that way but a few years later when our children were just little we did live by faith for a while when james was setting up uh, street pastors here in aberdeen and we didn't know where our money was going to come from each month we we had some people that were committed sponsor- to sponsoring us and stuff and it was amazing but god provided for us miraculously for years, how many years? I don't know, five years or something, it was a long time. Our mortgage got paid, our kids had shoes on their feet, our cupboard had you know, food, enough food in it to last us. You know, we weren't rich, we weren't loaded, but, but we were provided for, and it was remarkable. And so my questions for this section are, what aspects of this passage do you find challenging? All of it second question in what area of your life can you pray to God your will be done in this season so in this passage through asking for God's will and pursuing it James would see us turn the world worldly desires for control into surrender and trust for pride and arrogance into humility and for money love and self-sufficiency into generosity and reliance. Why don't we pray together that the Lord's will would be done? Before the online community leaves, why don't we stand and let's say the Lord's prayer together in response to this. Join me if you will online too, you can stand too.